this morning is coming from John chapter 3, looking at the love of God. We've done a lot of different series of lessons over the last uh, few weeks, uh, some on books of the Bible, some on the Minor Prophets, and so I'm taking a little bit of a break from some of that, uh, but I wanted us to look at this morning the topic of the love of God, and that is a very large topic, to say the least. You can go in a lot of different areas, you can go and look at a lot of different aspects, you can have lesson after lesson. I'm sure there's been lectureships and entire gospel meetings done on the topic of the love of God, and so I don't pretend to cover everything this morning, but I want us to consider just some things uh, on this topic for our time together this morning. As we read just a moment ago there from John chapter 3, oftentimes we read verse 16, sometimes we read verse 17, but I back up there to John 3 and begin looking there again at verse 14. Here, the Bible says, And as Moses lifted up his serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You remember that occasion where Moses lifted up the serpent? It was the bronze serpent that was created because there was fiery serpents in among them. Some believe that to be uh, scorpions, or they may have been. Whoever looked upon that serpent, that bronze, that bronze serpent, would be saved. Interestingly enough, and Chuck has reminded us of this different times, but if you look on the back of a lot of ambulances, at least on the back, I think it's on the side now, I don't remember. So it has something that resembles that same idea of that serpent. I don't know if they realize where that's coming from, but the idea was in the Bible, when you looked upon it, you would be saved because of a sign of obedience. If you just looked upon this, you would be saved from those fiery serpents. And it's interesting to think about this idea in verse 14 that he pictures here the Son of Man being lifted up. But it's more than just looking upon Christ that brings obedience, or that brings salvation, but it is obedience to Him. He says in verse 15 that whoever believes in Him, should not perish or have ever have eternal life. It was no longer just looking like he was upon a serpent in verse 14, but, look, but looking to God in faithfulness, believing in him there in verse 15. And he should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. How do you begin to describe how much God loves mankind? Well, through his son, he gave the greatest sacrifice that ever could be given, the sacrifice of the son on the cross. But if you look at the life of Christ, I'm convinced that his suffering for mankind began long before the cross. But we think about the love of God this morning, not focusing just on the sacrifice of Christ. We think about the love of God. The supreme sign of that has to be that the love of God seen through the sacrifice of his Son. As we find there also in the book of Romans, that God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. We find in verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave, shows freely, not by compulsion, but freely, His only begotten Son, that is His unique, His one-of-a-kind Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God loves mankind. Say that term, say that phrase simply. That is very hard to begin to explain just how much God loves man. If you were to try to explain to someone how much you love your children or your spouse or your, or your children or your grandchildren, it's hard to put that into words, isn't it? You say, well, I'd do anything for them. It's hard to kind of go beyond that. 
But God can go beyond that, can he? Because he says, I will do things for you. Then he literally does everything for us. Leaving us with the task of obedience. But I want us to, for, this, for our time together this morning, start by looking at God's love for man as it's seen first in the Old Testament. Again, I don't plan to look at everything we can possibly say about God's love for man in the Old Testament. But I think when we think about God's love for man in the Old Testament, you have to start with creation. Because God created a place that was designed specifically for man to be able to, not only to survive, but for man to thrive. You think about creation, you go from chapter 1, verse 1, up to the creation of, of man. That everything God has created is, is, is to surround mankind. A place where we can live and breathe and survive God created. A place where we can actually have food based upon those things that are, that are there, plant life and animals and all those creatures put there by God. They weren't put there for him just to look at. God didn't create a zoo, did he? No, he created a place for mankind to live and to thrive. We think about at creation, I think about how God even made a specific place for Adam and Eve in the beginning until they disobeyed. But in Genesis chapter uh, 1 and verse uh, 26, we'll get to, to the garden here in just a moment. Here the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God just said everything belongs to man. That's what he said. Dominion means you have power, you have authority over that. No matter what Peter may say, man has dominion over animals. They're there to serve a purpose. We find there in verse 26, let us make man in our image. You know, God could have created man in any type of image he desired, but he chose to make him in our image, he says, according to our likeness. That's the love of God, isn't it? The man is unique. Nothing else was created in the likeness of God or in the image of God. And then he says there in verse 26, Let him have dominion, not let him be submissive, not let him be inferior, but have dominion, which means he can have food and all types of things he needs from the creation that God has made for him. Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that mankind today will be a sure shot when we go out to the field. I can assure you I am not. But it doesn't mean we do not have dominion over those things. God has placed animals and all these creatures here for our enjoyment, whether it be for food or for other things. They have been placed here for man. They were not placed here for any other reason. We look at Genesis chapter 2, looking at verse 8. We find that God, God even created a place specifically for Adam. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. That reference to Adam, right? He made a garden. Why would you do that for someone who you don't care anything about? Here I made everything for you. Oh, by the way, here's a garden just for you. There he put the man whom he had formed. Genesis 2 and verse 8. The love of God. You think about how many safeguards we put in place when our children are born? We soundproof our kitchens, or not soundproof, we childproof, don't you wish you could soundproof a house when you have children? Anyway, you childproof certain rooms of your homes, 
because you want nothing to happen to them. If you can prevent something within a reasonable amount, you try to do that, right? Because you care and you love for that child. As we give it older, what we say, this is how you learn to start taking things off, don't we? Well, why don't we do that, though, in the first place? Because we love that child. When God created the world, he did so because he loves mankind. It's a place designed for man not only to live, but to thrive and to grow and to, yes, to find happiness, even in God's very own creation. God loves mankind, and it's seen at creation. God's love for man is also seen in the marriage bond. Despite what the world around us may say, God's love is seen in the marriage bond. In Genesis chapter 2, looking at verse 18, the Bible says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. This does not mean that they stand to remain unmarried, but what God found with Adam in Genesis chapter 2, he says he needs a companion. He needed a companion. If we can find a companion that will be one who will help us get to heaven, one that's actually good for us, and by all means we should, we should pursue that companion, as he points it here in verse 18, knowing, of course, man and woman, right? When God does things, he excludes all other options, doesn't he? You look at Genesis chapter 2, this time looking at verse 21. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Flesh of my flesh, right, as he says later. He was a companion comparable to him. Adam and Eve. Now, we could preach from this point about homosexuality this morning, but we won't. Why did God create Adam and Eve? Why did God create Adam and then bring Eve to, to Adam? Because God saw that Adam needed a companion. He says, it's not good that man should be alone, verse 18. Why did he do that? Because God loved Adam, God loved Eve, and he would love everyone who would come after them as well, whether they rebelled against him or not. God's love is seen in the marriage bond. He loved Adam enough he did not want to leave him alone. You remember in verse 18 and following that Adam names every creature on the earth, that's quite the task, and he didn't find anything that was comparable to him. Anything that was comparable to him. That's a slap in the face to those who want to talk about things other than the human and human relationship. Instead, God made what? He made Adam fall asleep and he made Eve from his own bones. A helper comparable to him. Why? Because God cares for man. We could add, we could add all kinds of lessons that are seen from the prophets and the Old Testament and the list can go on and on concerning the love that God has for man in the Old Testament. We're not even out of Genesis yet. We're not even in chapter 3 yet. And we see God's love for man. We think about Joseph. Did God show his love for Joseph? Absolutely. Did God show his love for David? Absolutely. For Job? Absolutely. And this goes on and on and on, doesn't it? And those are just the quote-unquote big names that we're familiar with. God loves mankind. We also find God's love displayed in Christ, which brings us to the New Testament. And I think sometimes we, we, we're quick to jump to Christ ministry or Christ going to the cross. You know, before Christ could do anything for us, 
He has it first depart from heaven. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be too keen on leaving a place that is literally perfection. As Revelation describes a place where there's no no pain, no sorrow, no 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 tears, anything like that. But Christ is to leave that perfect place of harmony and rest and joy to come to earth. You know, sometimes when I see something that isn't quite right, something you think, man, that's, that's a tough little swallow. Sometimes I say, you know, boy, that's a, that's a rip-off. Now, Christ didn't get ripped off when he came to the earth. But he did sacrifice quite a bit, didn't he? We know how we feel sometimes when we leave our vacation, when we've gone somewhere, and we say, this is so nice, we enjoy that trip, all those types of things. And we think about Christ leaving heaven. We think about him being sent from perfection, sent to the earth, and we think about what that means for us today. We think about God's sacrifice involving Christ includes sending out of sending him out of heaven away from his presence. Away from his presence. And we have a tough time going home after vacation. Leaving heaven, leaving the, the presence of God. Christ had to leave heaven before man could have the hope of heaven. He had to leave that place of perfection, a place of perfect fellowship with God. And upon leaving, when he came to the earth, we know he was born of a virgin. He fulfilled all those different prophecies concerning his arrival date, the place he'd be born, how he was born, where he was born, and all those things. And then begins his earthly ministry after he is, after, after he grows up and that, those events that transpire between his birth. Afterwards, he, he grows up and he begins his earthly ministry by the age of 30. And what happened when he began his earthly ministry? Ridicule. Ridicule. Christ was rejected by many, ridiculed by those who were supposedly religiously knowledgeable. And, the, and these men did much of this by arguing against truth and instead argued for their own traditions. The very ones he was coming to save are the ones who were ridiculing him. The Jews, the reason they called him the king of the Jews and they put him on the cross because he was a Jew, right? And what happened? Oh, they despised him because he did not do as they expected him to do. He did not condone everything they did. He didn't join in with all their traditions. Instead, he by the truth of God's word, and they ridiculed him for it. The Jews, the Pharisees, and the scribes, just in one section in Mark chapter 7, you have three groups that go against Christ. Mark 7, beginning in verse 1, the Pharisees and the scribes, there's two, came together to, came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw, <coughs> excuse me, when they saw some of the disciples eat bread that was defiled, uh, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault with the Pharisees and all the Jews, there's the third one, do not eat unless they have washed their hands, now notice, in a special way. It's not that they were physically unclean, they had gross, disgusting hands, they just didn't do it as they thought they should do it, in their special way. Holding the tradition of the elders, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and, and there are many things uh, which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, saying, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But eat bread with unwashed hands. 
He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? He goes on to torch them from the scriptures. He's saying, You're just what Isaiah was talking about. You're hypocrites. What are they wanting him to do? Well, that's the traditions. And how does Christ begin there in Mark 7? He calls them hypocrites because he's saying they're fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. The Jews, the Pharisees, and the scribes all attacked him in one section there in Mark 7. We also could look at the Sadducees back in Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, and this won't be on the screen, Luke 20 beginning in verse uh, 27 and following, the Bible says here that some of the Sadducees who denied their, their resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, he dies without children. So his brother should take his wife and raise, raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. The list goes on and on and on with their ridiculous figurative situation, right? It's amazing that today we have people say, well, what, happened? what about this was to happen? And we have to realize, meantime, those, those scenarios never happen. They're so outlandish. And here we find here, they're in the same thing, saying, well, you know, what's this? Brother married this woman, and then he died, and then the next brother married her, and the next one. Who's, who, you know, whose wife would she be? That's a ridiculous question. Remember, Christ's answer says in heaven there is no marriage, and that just ends their whole argument. Well, why are they doing that in the first place? They want him to look bad. They want him to make a decision to look completely, utterly foolish. And instead, they walk away looking like, well, completely foolish. Ridicule is what he was greeted with when he came to the earth. God's love for Christ, uh, God's love for us through Christ is displayed by sending him out of heaven to earth, by allowing Christ to endure ridicule, and also it's seen by the teaching of Christ. Upon the beginning of his ministry, Christ taught constantly. Matthew, yes, Matthew 4, verse uh, 17. At that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23. And Jesus went, to all, went all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Why did he do that if he didn't love mankind? Well, he did love mankind. God loves mankind. And what was one of the purposes of Christ's coming was to preach the gospel. So where did he go? Verse 23 says he basically went everywhere. He went all throughout Galilee. We know he also went to other places as well, right? Preaching and teaching the whole entire time. During ridicule, the whole entire time by various groups of people. Why did he do that? Because God loves mankind. Sacrifice. Christ endured mental ridicule, physical torture, and spiritual trials for the sake of mankind. He endured mental ridicule, speaking against him. Remember on the cross, you say say you're the Son of God, come on down. Right? Physical torture and spiritual trials for the sake of all mankind. Christ's reason for enduring such things is because of his love for mankind, as our text says there in John 3, 14 through 17. Because God so loves the world. He continues to love the world. God's love for mankind is one that is, if we're honest, is really breathtaking to think about. From creation 
until the judgment day, we see God's love for mankind each and every day. Because every day, every moment we have is a chance to make sure that we are right with God. Every time we get up in the morning is a chance to right any wrong we have done. It's a chance to grow closer to God. It's a chance to help win lost souls for the, for the sake of the kingdom. Everything God gives to us is because of his love for us. Some points for us to consider this morning. They, they come in the form of a question. Our first is, how does man reply to God's love? Not how should, but how does man reply to God's love? Well, man oftentimes replies with indifference, as you find in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2, when they say the phrase, in what way have, we, have you loved us? What are they doing? Well, they're, they don't really care about these things. They're mocking him, but also we find their common question, their common reply is, in what way, in what way? Because they don't want to change. That's oftentimes how man re- replies. Man also can reply re- with rebellion. Going to Jeremiah chapter 19, beginning in verse 14. The Bible says, in Jerusalem, Then Jeremiah came from, from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house, and said to all the people, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring out, bring on this city and all, all her towns and all the doom that I, promised, that I pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks, that they might not hear my words. He's going to bring doom upon them. Why? Because they won't listen. It's just like a child at home. They won't listen. What do you do? You punish them for not listening. In some way, we thought, okay, you're not going to listen. This is what's going to happen now. And that's what God says there in verses 14 uh, and 15 there of Jeremiah 19. And what happened in verse uh, chapter 20? The Bible says in chapter 20, they all listened and obeyed, right? No, they put Jeremiah in stock. God was trying to warn them. Why? Because he loved them. If you don't turn around and do what is right, you're going to face the doom that I'm going to bring upon you. And their reply to the 20, put Jeremiah in stock and make him be quiet. Well, if you know much about Jeremiah 20, we're not going to look at it as much as I'd like to. He wasn't quiet. He wouldn't be quiet. He even references how being quiet was almost impossible for him to do, as he says there in verses uh, 9 and 10. We also find mocking. It's how some reply. In Acts chapter 2, even in Acts chapter 2, we find mocking. Beginning in verse 5, the Bible says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, I'm about the, the, the rushing wind, the Holy Spirit coming upon them there in verses 1 and 2. The multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galilean? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in, what we, in, in which we were born? Did they listen? No. Verse 13, others mocking said, They are all full of new wine. They're just drunk. And Peter, of course, rebukes that and begins to preach a gospel sermon that results in 3,000 people obeying the gospel. But some mock. They're just drunk. That's how some were responding. The Bible reminds us of this simple truth in Matthew 7 and verse 21 that not everyone goes to heaven. In Matthew 7, 21, here Christ speaking, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know how many people would dis- disagree with that point blank? Everybody goes to heaven. 
Well, Christ said, no, everybody goes to heaven. Everybody's a good person, everybody's going to go to heaven. Christ says, that's not the case. You are wrong. How can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, loving God doesn't want to send someone to hell. The disobedient choose it because they don't want to obey. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is into the kingdom of heaven. But who gets to go then? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Friends, that is love because everyone went to heaven. If every scoundrel went to heaven, heaven wouldn't be heaven anymore. It'd be just like here on earth. God loves mankind enough that he keeps the rebellious, the wicked, the liar, the deceitful, all those individuals. They are not permitted entrance into heaven. Why? Because he loves mankind and because he wants the faithful to be able to dwell with the faithful and the faithful only. That's why heaven is heaven. Verse 21, that he who does all of my Father in heaven, that's the person who gets, is, who is allowed to, to enter into heaven with God and with Christ and with all the faithful. So we look at, we have seen how man oftentimes replies, but how should Man replied to God's love. Man's only right reply is in complete obedience to God's will. That is, complete obedience to His Word. There's no other right way to respond to God's love. If someone came up to you, say, for instance, your, your spouse before you were married came up to you and says, I love you very much, I want to get married to you, and say, oh, that's nice. Does that sound like you really love him? No. God shows his love for us by giving his son on the cross. And we say, oh, that's nice. Or we say, okay, what do I need to do now? I want to do whatever I can because you have done so much for me. Because we know why he has done that for us, right? We know why our spouses are with us because they love us. And we'll leave it there. There's plenty of things that are included in that, right? Why did Christ die on the cross for us? Because one's will of God, and two, He too loves mankind. He too wants us to go to heaven. He tells us very clearly there in the book of Luke that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. You don't do that if you don't love mankind. Christ endured ridicule and hardship and mocking and doubters and naysayers from the very beginning of His very first lesson. When he would turn water into wine, not non-alcoholic as we know from the context because it would make him a big phony if he made everybody drunk on a, on a wedding feast. Even when Mary came and asked him to, to help with that wedding, what did he tell her? What was his first response? My time has not yet come. You could say to some degree at least that she too had part in trying to do, cause him to do things that he was not yet ready or prepared to do. Think about that. His first response was basically, no, wasn't it? He made that decision on his own. We think about how we should reply to God's love. Our reply cannot be love, or cannot be no. It must be complete obedience. Acts 2, verse 37. Remember, this is the same time frame when those back in verse, uh, in the beginning of chapter 2 had been mocking and saying, well, they're just drunk. By the time Peter finishes his sermon in verse 37, what is the response we find of so many? Not everybody. Not everybody. Because there's a lot of people there. But look what happens in verse 37. Now when they heard this, notice their response, they were cut to the heart 
That's not the response yet, though, is it? The response is, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That was their response. Because people, they were cut to the heart by the words of Stephen, weren't they? But they stoned him. When they were cut to the heart by the words of Peter, though, they asked, what shall we do? Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, as that promise of eternal life through obedience, is what? It's to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as means the Lord God, Lord our God will call. How? Through the gospel. Means what happened there in Acts 2 can happen to anyone who obeys the gospel with sincerity. Look at verse 40. That's not the end of it. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word, that indicates a proper response, doesn't it? Then those who gladly received his word. There are those who, who receive words, but not very gladly. They'll hear like they did with Stephen, but they don't want to gladly respond. No, their response is, start getting stoned. We're going to kill this guy. That's what they did. But their response here in verse 41 is they, they gladly received his word. And what happened? Were baptized, signifying obedience to the gospel, right? And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Them being a reference to the believers making up the church. 3,000 people. They just say that very much so the minority, the small group, replied. As we close this morning, we must remember that God's love is seen from sunrise to sunrise. That is, it's seen every hour of every day. We think about the blessings of God, sometimes we think about the big things, we think about the love of God, sometimes we think about the big things, but sometimes we fail to realize that when we wake up in the morning that God's showing His love for us. He could decide our night, our life would end that evening, but He didn't. He gives us at least seemingly one more day, right? That's why I say we can see God's love from sunrise to sunrise. 24 hours a day we can see God's love for us. Which asks, which brings really the question, or begs the question rather, how have you replied to God's love for you, and is it time you act correctly? How do we respond to what God has done for us? You know, His love for mankind is clearly seen throughout the Scriptures. But we know that, God, that man's love for God is not clearly seen throughout the Scriptures. We see times where mankind definitely shows their love for God. There's no doubt about it. We also see plenty of times where mankind does not. Where mankind flat out ignores and walks away from God. And so we have asked ourselves the question, what is going to be our reply to God's love for man? We have seen what God has done for us, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. We can look into more things, and I encourage you to continue to read your Bible and look and see how much God loves for you and decide how you're going to respond. Even if you are a Christian, you still can respond to God's love still today. We can stop, we're going to respond to God's love by having a deeper, more serious, and a stronger conviction for Him. We're going to have a deeper love for Him, a more determined attitude to do what is right and pleasing in the sight of God, a more determined love to help bring others to Christ. Because God's love isn't just for the non-Christian to respond to, it's also for the Christian to continue to respond to. 
this morning that you think about these things. If we can help you or encourage you in any way, we've got to, we'd be glad to do so. It's going to be sent.